uh, we get to jump into this next part, uh, part four of our five-part series called uh, Breaking Points. And uh, I just want to begin by mentioning where I was uh, a week ago Saturday. I was with uh, these guys uh, here. It was a family wedding. My niece got married. And so there's my four brothers and I with my 84-year-old father at my niece's wedding. And uh, my brothers, we, 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 all live, we all live in Grand Rapids. We have two sisters, total of seven, for those of you not great with math skills. Uh, total of seven siblings, sisters live in Denver, five brothers all here in Grand Rapids. Uh, their names are John, Joel, James, and Joshua. So every once in a while, someone will come up and say, hey, I met your brother. I go, awesome, which one? And they go, I think his name started with a J. And I went, I'm gonna need another clue, you know? And so the amazing thing to me, though, is that we are all, living in the same general area. It's sort of amazing because our dad migrated a lot. And I mean a lot. Here's a list. Started his married life in Idaho, moved to Michigan, then California, then Wyoming, then back to Michigan, then to Colorado, and then back to Michigan. He's saying, Jeff, you lived in all those places? No, I just lived in the first three. I was born in Idaho, stayed there until I was about 12. Uh, mom killed in an accident. Then we moved to Grand Rapids area. Dad remarries after a couple years here, eighth grade and ninth grade. Then we moved to California where I exit the house. So I got the first three. My youngest brother, born in California and then migrated to Wyoming and Michigan. And my youngest sister, born in Wyoming and then back to Michigan and then in Colorado. And that's one of the ones that lives in Denver. So let's just say this there were a few moving parts. And I'm kind of amazed that we're in the same area with all those moves. And so just in case, just in case you've ever wondered, Jeff, why are you in the same, serving the same church, living in the same town for 40 years? The answer is there. I'm rebelling against my childhood. <laughs> just wanna stay put one place. But as far as family goes, uh, Seriously, with family, I, I feel like I won the lotto. I never imagined that my kids would be raised around their cousins. I feel like we won the lotto. Not just there, but also there with our kids and grandkids. And yet, <laughs> and yet, I think if you pull Chris and I aside and you said, what are the most rewarding relationships in your life? I think we'd say our marriage and our relationship with our kids. If you asked what have been the most challenging, exhausting relationships in your life, we would say our marriage and our relationship with our kids. Same family. We just have to acknowledge something together today. Family Family can provide the greatest opportunity for acceptance, for love, for knowing deep down inside that you're secure. And family can provide the greatest opportunity for frustration, exhaustion, pain, and rejection, often within the same family. So as we navigate through this series called Breaking Points, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that two of the messages, the last two messages, relates to breaking points within family. A breaking point, meltdowns, family-type meltdowns. 
and the breaking point that we drop in today, it's a, it's a main character in our Bible. One of the first stories you get if you open a Bible to the book of Genesis, it's a dude by the name of Abraham. And just a, a, a map here, uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, sometimes called Sarai, uh, they lived uh, over in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. It's the, the Persian Gulf area. And it's like, it's like he hears this voice from the creator that says, Abraham, I need you to move. I need you to move. I need you to go to a place you'd never been. I need you to leave everything that's familiar. I need you to leave your country, leave your language, leave your people. I need you to go to this place called Canaan. But then there's this series of promises that are given. It's basically, if you follow me and if you leave and if you move, I will bless you unbelievably. So uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse two, one of the promises, I will make you into a great nation and I will, I will what? I will bless you. Now that great nation thing, that was problematic because Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. They struggled with infertility for years. And the idea, I will make you a great nation, the idea is that they would have kids, that those kids would have kids, that those kids would have kids, and their family tree would just boom. They move, they actually do it. They leave their home, they move, they migrate, and there they sit and wait for this promised child so that they can be Come a people and not just a couple. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And there's some pretty bad decisions that are made along the way. And today we see a breaking point in the Abraham family. Most of us, though, didn't need the story of Abraham to know that in family you can reach a point where something just breaks. The engagement falls through. The adoption falls through. The adoption doesn't fall through. The adoption goes through. But there, there are complications. And like the Abraham family, sometimes you just reach a point where something just breaks. The challenge of infertility the challenge of navigating a marriage, the challenge of parenting, specifically the challenge of parenting child number two. Child number, I can pick on child number two because I was child number two. Child number two. Child number one was so easy. You think parenting, we got this thing nailed. We're good at this. We ought to write a book on parenting. And then came child number two. And you're questioning, you're, 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 you're no longer questioning doctrines that you once questioned. You, once upon a time, you questioned the doctrine of total depravity. Not anymore. There was a time when you questioned the existence of demons. <laughs> Just saying. Now, we can laugh at this, but behind the laughter, behind the humor... It can be long and it can be hard and it can be exhausting like the meltdown, the breaking point in the Abraham family. And so uh, there's a couple things going in. Today, as we look at this major family meltdown, this mess within the Abraham family, just number one, just very simply, I need you to know you're not alone. You're not alone. The Bible is incredibly candid about what can go wrong within families. And so just to breathe a sigh of relief and go, okay, it's not just us, we're not alone. But number two, and this is critical, we need to be reminded that God can be powerfully at work even in the mess. 
look at me. Today, you might just need a reminder that God can be powerfully at work in spite of the mess. So this Abraham breaking point is going to unfold in three different scenes. Scene one, we're just calling uh, the waiting room, the waiting room. And scene one opens with this, this long saga of infertility. And so uh, if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to find uh, Genesis chapter 16, and it opens with this fragment. It just says, now Sarah, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Sarah, Abram's wife, borne him no children. And this, my friends, is after the move to Canaan. They moved. They kept their end of the bargain, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. Now, Sarah's infertility is mentioned here in a sentence. But the experience of infertility doesn't happen in a sentence. Infertility unfolds through a sequence of monthly disappointments. And winter comes, and then spring, and then summer, and fall, and there's no pregnancy, and there's no kid. And another winter, and another spring, and another summer, and another fall, and there's no pregnancy, and there's no kid. And Abraham's got to be going, yes, some great nation. And another winter, and another spring, and another summer, and another fall, no pregnancy, no kid. When you open your Bible to Genesis chapter 16, do you know how long they had been in Canaan after the move? 10 years of waiting. 10 winters have come and gone. And finally, Sarah just goes, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I'm done waiting, I'm tired of waiting. So, okay, so that's the breaking point. The breaking point was her infertility. No, that's not the breaking point. The breaking point came as a result of some decisions that were made in the exhaustion of waiting. And back in the day, there were other options. And for a wealthy family, a family of means, a family with servants, I'll tell you what one of those options was. And this was very, very common in that world. I'm just describing here what was commonly done. What was commonly done, if a couple of means could not have a child year after year after year, is that the husband would sleep with one of the servants, one of the slaves, and that slave, if she was expecting, would become kind of the surrogate mother for their baby. You're thinking, dude, Abraham recommended that? No, Sarah recommended that. Second half of verse one, but she, Sarah, had an Egyptian slave, a woman's name's Hagar, she's from Egypt, So she said to Abram, the Lord's kept me from having children. Now go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps, note the wording here, perhaps I can build a family through her. So the idea here is that Abraham would be the father, but that Hagar would be the surrogate mother for Abraham and Sarah's child. I can build a family through her. And so it says, so after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years Sarah, his wife, a couple words here that are interesting. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife, to be his, like, second wife. And just the words there, Sarah 
took the Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to Abraham. And the reason I highlighted those two words, she took her slave and gave her to Abraham, is because if someone is reading Genesis and really dialing into the story, there is an echo here, a faint echo of a previous story in Genesis, right out of the gate, the creation story. Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree in the garden. Uh, uh, uh. Don't eat from that tree. And Eve, these are the two words that are used. She took the fruit and she gave it to Adam. My friends, that's just 13 chapters before. This story, the infertility chapter with the Abraham family, that's Genesis 16. This is Genesis chapter three. And so when you get to Genesis chapter 16 and it says that Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abram, there is this echo of Eve taking the fruit and giving it to Adam. And the sense that I think the reader is supposed to pick up on here is that Hagar is forbidden fruit. <laughs> that is that, that even though this is something that was commonly done back in the day, it, it doesn't mean Abraham should have gone along with this plan. It's just a little gentle reminder here that there's all kinds of stuff that are common in a culture. It doesn't mean we're supposed to go in that direction. It's commonly done, but Abraham and Sarah, just, but they're just, they're just tired of waiting. Do something with me. We need to press pause on the Abraham story here. And I just want to speak to those of you who are in the, in the waiting room. And you're just waiting. And, and, and two words that are common words in the waiting room are just these words, just the words, how long? How stinking long? Am I going to wait this out? How long? How long till this depression lifts? How long? Uh, how long, Lord, will they have to suffer with this terminal illness before you just take them home? I mean, how long? How long until trust is fully restored in our marriage? How long? How long until this kid comes around? This is the question from the waiting room. How long, how long, how long? And my friends, this is dangerous space because often in the waiting room, the longer you wait, the more you can begin to suspect that God has forgotten you. The longer you spend in the waiting room, the, you may begin to suspect, you may begin to silently suspect that God is not good. And we just won't give our hearts to a God that we suspect is not good. It is hard to follow a God that you think is forgetting you. And so all I'm saying here is that when you find yourself in the waiting room asking, how long, how long, how stinking long, your, your faith is at risk because the waiting room is simultaneously a place, a greenhouse for faith to grow. And the waiting room is also that space where faith goes to die. The longer you're in the waiting room, the more your heart is at risk. And Sarah here is just, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I'm done wait, waiting. Here's Hagar, sleep with her. Well, what's gonna happen? She's now sharing Abraham's bed. And with the barest economy of words, we read in verse four, he slept with Hagar and she conceived. Ba-boom, ba-boom. Boop, I'm pregnant. Sarah has waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. There's a baby on the way. 
Now, I'm not reading ahead or anything, but I just think they're gonna be one happy family. I, I think Sarah and Hagar, they're just gonna kind of be like sisters together. I think Sarah is gonna organize the baby shower. There's a baby on the way, problem gone. No, 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 the problem is just getting started. Scene number two, scene number two is the breaking point. Scene number two is the breaking point. Check this out. When she, Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Contempt. Disdain. Low regard. When Hagar figures out that she's pregnant, she begins to despise Sarah. Because she had just jumped a couple levels. I mean, first you're the inferior, you're the slave, and then you're sharing Abraham's bed. Now it's like you're equals, uh, and then I'm producing something you've never been able to produce. She is posturing as Sarah's superior. Now, what did Hagar say? I don't know. We're not told. Maybe she didn't say anything. My friends, there is a lot that can be communicated through nonverbals. When she finds out she's pregnant, she begins to despise Sarah. Now, this is the point where Sarah should come to her husband and say, I'm so sorry. This was my plan. I totally messed up. I never should have recommended this. This, my friends, is not what happened. Verse 5, then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave into your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is your fault. And now this is where Abraham's supposed to call a timeout and say, okay, listen, just time out. Everybody breathe for a second. And he doesn't do that. Uh, he, verse 6, uh, your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. She's like, I, I, she's your slave. You know. And Sarah begins to abuse Hagar. It says to mistreat her. Sarah, it's like her new mission is to do everything she possibly can to make Hagar's life miserable, and she succeeds. And there comes a day where Hagar goes, I can't take this anymore, and she packs a few things, and she runs. She takes off. She flees. She leaves the Abraham family. I mean, this unfolds... Uh, uh, second half of verse 6, and Sarah mistreated Hagar, and she fled from her. This is just a mess. This is just a mess. Nobody's innocent here. If you're looking for a hero in the story, you're an innocent party, you can't find one. Uh, Hagar is condescending. Sarah is mean. And Abraham, he goes passive. Hagar is condescending. Sarah is mean. And Abraham is passive. It's just a mess. And, and, and the Bible tells a story, presents a story without sugarcoating the pain, without varnishing it. It's just kind of like, 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 here it is for the mess that it is. Now, uh, back in the day, I know that some of you watched the Coen Brothers movie, No Country for Old Men. Do you remember, remember this movie, No Country for Old Men? Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, he's a sheriff in Texas. Even though it's set in 1980, there's a scene when they're on horseback, he and his deputy Wendell, and they ride out into the desert together. They witness the scene of a drug deal that's gone bad. 
vehicles are shot up, bodies litter the ground, uh, shell casings all over the place, and with stunning understatement, as Tommy Lee Jones rides in, he surveys the carnage and announces, seems to have been a glitch or two. And then Wendell, the deputy, as he rides around, says, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? Tommy Lee Jones pauses for a moment and says, if it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here. And what we see in the Abraham, it's a mess. It's just kind of like, ain't this just a mess? Hagar is alone. She's pregnant and in the desert. Alone, pregnant, and in the desert. And just... Just an opportunity to pause and just to be able to say, if you're experiencing a family meltdown, a family breakdown, it's not just you, you're not alone. Listen, if you haven't experienced one of these in your own family, I can almost guarantee that you've witnessed one in your extended family or in your friend group. A major family breaking point. I've witnessed more than a few. I remember years and years and years ago, a couple ate a Bible church, brand new baby. And with the brand new baby came a brand new revelation that the husband had been seeing someone. And now they got this joy of this brand new baby and a marriage is in the process of disintegrating. The woman said to me, Pastor, I didn't know it was possible to hurt this much and still be alive. I remember talking to a dad, Forrest Hill's dad, whose son was in some pretty serious trouble. Told me the day he left his downtown office, went to the courthouse downtown to sit through the arraignment. Not the trial, just a parade of people going in front of the judge. You hear the charges read and you have to uh, plea, you know, innocent or, or, or guilty to the charges. And his dad is sitting there watching this parade of people. And it became very evident that a lot of these people going before the judge, this wasn't their first time in that room. He said he was sitting there and he thought to himself, what are we doing here with these people? And he said, Jeff, it occurred to me We are these people. Remember an event out at the lakeshore? Speaking for a group, and before I got up to speak, there was a guy that was going to be leading some worship songs. And he said to me, he said, uh, I hope I make it through this. I said, what do you mean? And a song that we were going to sing that day was Good, Good Father. It's a song that we've sung at Ada Bible Church before. You're a good, good father, talking to God. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. He says, I don't know that I can make it through this song. I never knew my dad. The, the, the word breaking point, the word meltdown, I know it just doesn't begin to touch some of the heartbreak or heartache that some of you have traveled through. I drive past a cemetery routinely, and sometimes I look over into the cemetery and I remember standing there with a mom and dad who were burying their young adult child who had died of a drug overdose. It's just a mess. 
but it's not just a mess. <laughs> Something I am totally unprepared for in the Abraham story is for God to make an appearance and for God to be at work in and around and through this mess. Hagar, she is alone, she's pregnant, and she's in the desert, and so off she goes, off she goes, there she goes. The slave is gone, Hagar is gone, that growing baby bump is gone, and what we're anticipating now is for the camera to shift back to Abraham and Sarah, and they're waiting for a child. And instead of the camera focusing back on Abraham and Sarah, the camera follows Hagar, out into the desert. And I'm not prepared for God to meet her there. Alone, pregnant, and in the desert. Scene number three is the meeting. Scene number three is the meeting. It says that the angel of the Lord found her by this spring that was in the desert. Angel, you don't think big, you know, wings. Uh, most often in scripture, when a messenger, the word angel means messenger, when a messenger from God arrives, often it's just in human form. So this messenger, it's like she's gonna get a word from God. The angel of the Lord does something. Uh, first, he calls her by name, Hagar. It's like, I know who you are. And then asks two Powerful questions with, I think, two of, two of the most important questions in life. We find these words. Uh, it says, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Hagar, he calls her by name. It's like God saying, I know you. I know you. Hagar, slave of Sarah. And then the two questions, where have you come from and where are you going? She's from Egypt. I think she's heading back to Egypt, which is more of a direction than it is a plan. <laughs> she answers the question. She's like, I'm just running away. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. I am running away. I just, where are you going? I'm away from that. How would, how would you answer that question today? Where are you going? Some would say, I'm running away. Some would say, I'm running away from home. I'm running away from responsibility. Somebody say, I'm trying to outrun a painful past. I'm trying to outrun my past. Some would even be so honest as to say, I'm running away from God. I'm running away. And this God messenger says, okay, I need you to do something. I need you to go back and I need you to lose the attitude. <laughs> Seriously, verse nine. And then no ultrasounds back in the day. The messenger says, okay, listen, you're, the baby you're carrying, it, it, it's a boy. You're going to have a boy. And this is what you're to name the boy. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to, you're going to give birth to a son. It's a boy. And you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your what? It was Sarah's mission to make her absolutely miserable. It's like the Lord has heard about your misery. The Lord has heard about your misery. And by the way, Ishmael, uh, the word Ishmael means God hears. Those last two letters, E-L, L, is an ancient term for God, L. So Ish, you know, like God hears, to hear from God. God, God hears you, God hears you. 
you realize that going into the future, every time she called her son, Ishmael, she remembered that moment when she was alone, pregnant, and in the desert, and God heard her. He knows you. He hears you. And that moment when you're driving in your car and you are so not knowing what is next and you ask to no one in particular, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He hears you. The God messenger appears to Hagar and says, you're going to have a son. Name him Ishmael because God hears you. He knows you and he hears you. Now, the story gets, takes another twist, another turn. Something comes that's totally unexpected, and that is the, 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 the God messenger, the angel, says, this is what you're supposed to name your son, Ishmael. And Hagar now goes, okay, and now I have a name for you. So God has a name for the son, and now Hagar has a name for God. She names God in this story. It's in verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are, can you read it with me? You are the God who sees me. You see me. He knows her. He hears her. He sees her. You are the God who sees me. Now, the Hebrew words there that don't appear in an English Bible, it's, it's El Roy, and El Roy is like God sees. You are the God who sees me. You know me. You hear me. You see me. You saw me in the desert when I was pregnant and alone. You saw me. I was reflecting this past week on the ministry of Jesus and how often um, we read in the Jesus biographies in our Bible about the people that Jesus sees and often that Jesus announces that he's seeing someone. Uh, one of Jesus' first disciples, one of the first people who begins to follow Jesus around, a guy by the name of Philip. Philip is like this full-on believer right out of the gate. He chases a buddy down named Nathaniel. And when Philip finds Nathaniel, he says, we found him, we found him. We found this promised Messiah figure. It's, his name is Jesus, and he's from the town of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, what? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, the place is the sticks. And Philip says, okay, come and see. And so Nathaniel comes up to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and Jesus says this to him. Jesus says to Nathaniel, while you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He's the God who sees. I think while I was sitting under a tree in the shade, Nathaniel was meditating, he was ruminating, or he was praying, or we was hoping something serious or disruptive was going on in his heart. And Jesus looks at Nathaniel to say, when you were sitting under this, the fig tree, I saw you. What Jesus is saying is, I know you. I see what's going on in your heart. I see your hopes. I see your dreams. I see your anxiety while you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Later on, John chapter 5, Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. There's this large 
ornate pool, like a swimming pool thing, and Jesus, uh, people would camp out there with various bodily injuries and diseases and thought that the healing waters would you know, heal them. And uh, Jesus, there's a guy sitting there who has lost the use of his limbs. We don't know whether it's paralyzed, but crippled up in some way. And he had been in this condition for like 38 years. And in John chapter five, we read when Jesus, when Jesus saw him, when Jesus saw him and heard how long he had been in this situation, like almost four decades, he walks up to the guy and he goes, uh, so you want to get well? <laughs> Do you want to get well? Jesus sees him. There's a scene where Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee. He wants to get away with his disciples for some R&R, &R, just some rest, away from the crowds. The crowds figure out where he's headed. They see him on the lake. They go around. They're there when he gets out of the boat. And it says this, uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and hangs out for a couple days to teach them, to instruct them and to bring healing to some of them. When Jesus saw the crowd. Why is this important? To see Jesus as the one who sees human need. Because my friends, each and every one of us exit the womb looking for somebody who's looking for us. We all enter life on the lookout for someone who's on the lookout for us. Jesus was looking for us. And not only did he see our deepest need, when, when, when he gives up his life, he sacrifices his life to meet our deepest need. Man, to bring us home, to get us back. All I'm saying here is this. This is a Jesus that you really do need to get to know. He's the God who sees. He knows you. He hears you. He sees you. That name, Elroy, God who sees. I'm telling you, some of you probably ought to make a little, just a little three-by-five card. Write the words Elroy and set it somewhere or pin it somewhere that you see it routinely. Just to be reminded of the pregnant slave in the desert all alone who named God, the God who sees me. You see me, you know me, you hear me, you see me. Elroy, Elroy, the God who sees. He saw you. When you were in the front seat of your dad's truck and your dad blurted out, well, your mom and I are getting a divorce. I'm moving out. You need to be the man of the house now. And you were 11. He saw that. As you sat down and sent out 137 emails to friends and relatives who had been invited to the wedding that is now on hold. <laughs> he saw you. He saw you at the funeral home receiving the gracious and loving condolences of friends. And you were so grateful for their kind words 
but at the same time, you knew and they knew that it wasn't going to take the loss away. He saw you. He sees you as you sit in the counselor's waiting room with a churning stomach waiting for your names to be called. (laughs) He sees you. He sees your loss of sleep over the child that has totally gone off the rails. He sees you. He knows you. He hears you. He sees you. My friends, and this is so important for those of you in the waiting room who are asking that question, how long? How long? How long? How long? And a dear friend who was going through uh, phenomenal uh, upheaval, terrible disease, he didn't know which direction this was going to go. And he told me what his daily prayer was. And this was his daily prayer. It was just, God, I believe that you're good. I believe that you're wise. And I believe that you can be trusted. Situation totally unresolved. Middle of a medical challenge. And just every day, God, I believe believe you're good. I believe you're smart. You're wise. And I believe I can trust you even as I wait to figure out what's going to happen here. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're wise. I believe you can be trusted. Here at Cascade and in other spaces, can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to kind of whisper that one with me? I believe that you're good. I believe that you're wise. I believe you can be trusted. I mean, some of you are like, oh, yeah, no, not there yet. But some of you, this is exactly, precisely what you needed today. A prayer to guide you as you're in the waiting room. One more time, if you could whisper it. I believe that you're good. I believe that you're wise. I believe you can be trusted. What I've been trying to say today is really this. I want you to know the God that knows you. I want you more and more to hear from the God who hears you. And in some way, I want you to see the God who sees you, Elroy. The God who sees. My hope is that you would know that as God was profoundly at work in the Abraham mess, he can be profoundly at work in yours. And as he was present in their family breaking point, he desires to be present in yours as well. Let me ask you to stand here at Cascade and our other spaces. And again, thank you, thank you for being here today. And I just want to kind of pray us out of our rooms and into our week. So gracious God, we ask that you would guide us and lead us and give us hope. I pray that we would see your presence as we move into our day and into our week. Give us trust once again that you are good and with us. 
We ask this in the name of Jesus who came here for us. Amen. We'll see you next week.